This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. This is John Paul McDuffie from Wharton's Management Department, and I'm here with Dan Ammon, who is the Chief Financial Officer of General Motors. So, Dan, welcome. Great to be here. Uh, Dan's in town for a conference organized by MBAs of our management club, and uh, we're happy to give Knowledge at Wharton a chance to hear some of the things he's been talking about. Uh, Dan, I wanted to start with a look uh, back a a few years. Uh, You only joined General Motors in the last couple of years, but uh, with the benefit of hindsight, as you look at the leadership uh, steps that perhaps might have been taken by the company executives and the board in the years right before the crisis, What's your perspective on that? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd say we we don't spend a huge amount of time uh, looking backwards. Uh, We're all about looking forwards in the company right now and and plotting out a successful future for GM, building on the base that we have today. Having said that, as as we look at the the time preceding the financial crisis, if you like, and into the restructuring period, I think a number of the challenges that GM faced in that period of time really go back further than just the few years prior to the restructuring. Uh, they go back, in fact, in many instances, back for decades. And so I think it was a, a series of decisions over a very long period of time that got the company into a position or into the position that it was in as we got into the into the late part of, uh, of last decade. Obviously, our goal now is to take the successfully restructured company um, and really move it forward to the next level uh, to, to, so it becomes the winning uh, car company in the world. Great. Uh, so you're now the head of a finance group at GM, uh, which uh, has a, uh, quite a reputation even in the wider world from the past, uh, which I would say is built largely around, around two images. One, that it was pretty predictably a path to the top of GM. Uh, seven out of nine CEOs from the 1950s on came out of the finance function. Uh, and second, uh, perhaps more infamously, that it was uh, the bastion of the bean counters. So the you know the the cliched clueless finance function that was remote from the real feel of the business of making and selling cars. Uh, so we'll set aside the first one about path to CEO. We'll have to watch your career at GM. But uh, to talk about bean counters for a moment, uh, Bob Lutz, who is a legendary uh, automotive industry executive and car guy is a fan of yours. Uh, I found a quote where he said recently, Dan is the real deal. He's already done a lot to strip stupid thinking and analysis out of the finance group, but being counteritis is ever present at many levels and in all functions. So talk to us about being counteritis. Uh, what is it and how can, uh, how can you get rid of it in GM's finance group? Well, what I'd say is that from a f- the point of view of the finance function within GM, what we're really trying to do is to be a partner to the business Uh, to make sure that we're involved in helping drive better business decisions and to become integrally involved in all aspects of the business, you know, from the beginning of the supply chain to the end of the sales process and the customer support at the other end. Our role is to put the right information into the hands of the people that have to make the business decisions, to be partners at a very senior level with those people as they make those decisions, to be at the decision-making table, and to uphold the accountability for the performance under those decisions as we go forward. So uh, in this this business, which is low margin, uh, capital intensive, very competitive, the role of finance is crucial to the success of the company. 
to be successful, we have to turn data into information, information into insights, insights that allow better business decisions to be made. In order to do that effectively, we have to be fully integrated into all aspects of the business, and that's really what we're driving our finance function to do today. Great. So I understand that you yourself are, are a car guy, uh, a certified test track driver, uh, owner of vintage uh, Cadillac convertibles, among other cars, I'm sure. Uh, talk to us for a moment about any GM products, any new GM products in any part of the world that you're personally excited about. Well, we're, we're at a really interesting point in the development of the company today. We have a huge uh, uh, wall of new product coming, if you like, in the, in the next year or two both in uh, the North American market here, but also all around the world. Critical product launches, vehicles that have been developed over the last couple of years since the company emerged from its restructuring. And we're entering a very rich part of our product cycle. Uh, the breadth of the portfolio is really what's most impressive uh, from my perspective. You know, we have everything from our new entry in the luxury compact segment, uh, the Cadillac ATS coming in, taking on and beating the BMW 3 Series, which has owned that segment for so long. Uh, and we sent a very simple mission, uh, set a simple mission for the organization, which is build a better car than the 3 Series. We've gone ahead and done that. Uh, we have a whole new full-size truck portfolio coming over the next year or two here in North America. Uh, we are launching in Europe uh, at Opel, two critical new entries and new segments for us there, the Opel Mocha small compact SUV, uh, the Atom City Car, Again, a new segment for us and a really great entry into that. Uh, we have new launches going on all around the world uh, in our business in China and Brazil. South America, we've essentially relaunched a, a brand new portfolio of entries in that part of the world as well. So we're entering a very sweet spot in terms of our product cycle. Uh, we're investing very heavily in our future. We've doubled our capital expenditure budget over the last couple of years. And, you know, it's all about investing in the future, putting the right vehicles in the customer's hands, offering the customer real value across an enormously broad portfolio all around the world. And that's obviously key, keeping new product uh, in front of the consumer. As I heard you say at the conference this morning, you can't cost-cut your way back to prosperity. Uh, let me change tack here and ask you about uh, the sort of uh, unique state of GM right now as a private enterprise with a large government stake. It's uh, an election year. Uh, you folks must feel under a, a bit of a political microscope. Uh, how, do you, how do you manage amid all of that uh, probably often unwelcome scrutiny? Yeah, I, I think we, we've been uh, more in the political dialogue than we would, uh, might have wanted to have been over the last uh, several months, but we're not letting that distract us from our core job, which is driving this business for long-term success. And uh, you know, we're focused on getting these vehicles launched and into the marketplace. We're focused on making money. We're focused on reinvesting in our future. And we're not spending too much time worrying about uh, the political silly season. Sounds good. Let me ask you about uh, Europe. It's obviously, uh, it's been a recovery period for GM and for the North American industry here, partly because of the period of suppressed sales that immediately followed the financial crisis, some of that demand's coming back. It's enabled GM to post its best profits uh, ever in history, I understand. But Europe is obviously in a, a really tough uh, economic position, and Opel, uh, part of GM, is, uh, is, is really struggling. Uh, so, you know, I, Steve Gursky talked about this when he came to the Wharton Leadership Conference this summer. Uh, Opel's been losing money for 14 years. So in a terrible economic situation, uh, 
what make what do you and the rest of the GM team think you'll be able to to do to turn around Opal where past generations of leaders have not been so successful? Well, I think you have to look at the European industry in total, and then within that, you know, where is Opal? European industry in total is very challenged right now. Uh, demand is very low, capacity is too high. That results in a very difficult pricing environment. And by our reckoning, none of our competitors are really making money in the European market. So you have an industry in total that's losing a significant amount of money. And within that, you know, we're losing our share um, alongside that, if you like. So fundamentally, what has to happen is a, a realignment of uh, capacity on the one hand or supply and demand on the other. Um, we are taking actions to right-size our capacity equation uh, in Europe. Others of our competitors are, are, appear to be taking some of the same actions uh, at this point in time. And I think our assessment is that the industry environment in Europe has gotten bad enough, if you like, that it's become clear that a fundamental restructuring needs to occur. Now, in many ways, that's similar to what happened here in North America in the 2008 and 9 time frame. Um, but I don't think it's going to be as, as clean and as quick as what we went through here. Uh, I think it's going to be messier. I think it's going to be more complicated. And I think it's going to take longer. Uh, but our sense is we're at the point where there's a, there's a much greater realization today than we've seen at any point in recent years that the European industry must restructure. We're certainly doing our part of that. We expect um, our competitors will likely do the same. And that will hopefully result in a more stable uh, better match between supply and demand. And if we take that with any kind of economic recovery out in the long term in Europe, we'll be back to a much more sustainable picture. One topic that's been a bit of a flashpoint in Europe is uh, Fiat CEO Sergio Mar Marchionne's view that the industry really needs to, in a coordinated way, take out capacity. And I know he talks about Europe doing that in the steel industry at an earlier point in time. And Volkswagen in particular seems to have pushed back and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're not, we're doing well, we're not necessarily going to promise to take out capacity just because other companies are doing poorly. And they've said some pointed things about that. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's part of the larger problem of Europe. A lot of different companies, uh, countries having to think about difficult coordination at a time of crisis when they're mostly used to operating on a national basis. Do you have any views on how uh, how realistic or feasible it is to think of a, of a Europe-wide coordination of capacity reduction? Well, one view I have is I'm not going to become a third party in the Fiat Volkswagen <laughs> uh, back and forth. But but uh, to answer the question, I think, the, the as I said earlier, the, the things are bad enough now for everybody, it seems to us, that, that there's a greater uh, momentum uh, a greater realization, if you like, that there has to be a more fundamental restructuring. Now, is everybody going to hold hands and do it together in a unified way? I'm not sure I see that happening, but I, I do see uh, greater pressure and a greater necessity for a number of the players to act in the marketplace. Um, and as I said, it'll be probably messier and more complicated than what we saw in the U.S. restructuring, um, but I believe we're at a point where it, where it does need to happen and we're starting to see some signs of progress. If I can just ask you one more uh, Europe question briefly. Some of what's um, been in the news of some of the announcements out of Opal uh, are a plan to reduce uh, white collar and, and staff and executive employment and the like. And usually the overcapacity issue tends to be framed around closing factories and reducing blue collar employment. And uh, so I imagine a lot of people, in a sense, are watching and sensitive to this issue of where does reduction come? Um, 
I just wonder what your sense is about, uh, you know, those two different parts of, because you can't cost cut your way to prosperity, you've got new product out there, you need to market it. Um, what's your sense about those different parts of your strategy for turning Opal around? Well, as it was in the U.S., the, the turnaround of, of any business in this industry needs to be driven by product first. So we've continued to invest very heavily in product for Opal. There are a couple of very important launches coming later this year, uh, the Opal Atom, the city car, and the Mocha, the small SUV. Um, those are critical for us. But at the same time that we're pushing on the product side, uh, we are continually benchmarking, not just at Opal, but around the company, to make sure that every aspect of our operations is benchmarked to both the best within GM, but also the best benchmarks that we can find externally. And so we will continue to right-size and find efficiencies in all of our operations around the world until we get to really world-class levels of efficiency. And sometimes that involves uh, you know, reducing the number of employees we have, taking work out of the system to get more efficient, um, but where we need to take those actions, we will. Uh, let me ask you about another part of the world, uh, China. China's been a very big success story for GM and continues to be, both your own brands, uh, Buick First and, and now Chevrolet, and then some of the brands of your partner companies like, like uh, Wuling. Uh, you know, again, some of this happened well before you arrived, but what's your sense of what's helped GM be so successful in China? What are the capabilities of GM managers that have helped them do so well in that market? And how does how do you then think about the what looks like a, a coming slowdown in auto sales and maybe in China's economy more generally? Uh, have you got the the team and the capabilities to manage through not a situation of high growth but of perhaps slightly stalled growth? Sure. Well, the the history of GM in China has been really a success from the outset. Uh, some of that was attributable to what I'd call a first mover advantage, being one of the first foreign. Uh, manufacturers to really take a serious position and develop a serious partnership uh, in China. Uh, we have a very, uh, very strong partner uh, through SAIC, our main partner in China, and a, a really uh, mutually beneficial relationship that's developed between uh, between GM and and SAIC uh, through the joint ventures that we have, and uh, it's really been a story of mutual success uh, as we've gone there. In terms of the chi- the uh, Chinese economy and the current outlook. People talk about China slowing down, but it's slowing down from double-digit growth to single-digit growth. We need to keep Still that in looks, perspective. Looks pretty good compared to, to a lot of other places. A number, a number of other places in the world. Um, but we need to keep an eye on what the competitive landscape is, how much capacity is coming into the market, uh, so on and so forth. And you know, clearly, a slowdown at the same time that capacity is coming in is something that we that we keep an eye on. But we remain very bullish on the fundamental long-term macroeconomic story in China, and we'll, of course, carefully calibrate our business quarter to quarter, year to year, as we move along that path to ultimately a very long-term growth. Great. Well, let me wrap up with a question that's uh, more future-oriented. Like uh, like any company, uh, arguably, General Motors Future rests on the, the quality of the talent that you bring in now and in the future, and how well you're able to build them into an effective team. Uh, so... I'm wondering how you think of making the pitch to young people, here we are in the U.S., but maybe worldwide. Uh, I think going to big corporations and certainly big automakers has not exactly been the first choice of not of Wharton students, uh, where finance and consulting jobs have been more appealing. Uh, but uh, to bring in uh, some of that top talent, uh, what's, what's, what's your pitch? Well, I think the pitch is the same whether we're recruiting a very senior executive or someone out of out of business school, and that is 
you know, we're in the middle of uh, the transformation of one of the world's largest and most important uh, corporations. Uh, this is an incredibly fascinating, uh, complicated and demanding business. Um, we've taken a business that was uh, in serious trouble, was successfully restructured. We're at the point today where we're very stable and strong financially, we're making money, and we're back in growth mode. And that's a really big and important change uh, for this industry, which has been in a cost-cutting phase for so long. We're back in a growth mode. We're back in a reinvestment mode. Uh, we're fundamentally transforming the way that things happen with inside of General Motors. Uh, that involves uh, taking a lot of the very deep talent we have in the company, but absolutely supplementing that with people that we recruit from from other companies externally, as well as uh, new people coming in out of business school and so on. And I'd say we've been very successful in attracting some very senior executives and very uh, well-placed people from other companies into our organization. We've been similarly successful on our, and, and rapidly improving our ability to bring in talent out of the best schools into the organization as people realize that this is a once-in-a-lifetime op opportunity to get involved in one of the great corporate transformations of all time. Great. My bet would be that your appearance uh, before our students today uh, helped that process. So thanks very much for coming to Wharton and speaking to Knowledge at Wharton. Great. Thanks for having me here. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.